So this last week, somebody asked me a question I hadn't thought about in a while. They said, um, Cody, what do you do for fun? What do you do for fun? And my initial response was, I have three young children. There is no fun in my life, right? The fun is out the window for a while. Uh, but then I started to think about, well, okay, what kind of hobbies do you like to do? And, and I realized that most of my hobbies are around building something, because I really like to build stuff. And so uh, for years, I've been building, you know, and working on old cars and building those up. And I got an old uh, 54 pickup truck that I've been building for a while. And I like building things around here. If you've ever been here during uh, December nights, you see that we build houses out on the courtyard. We have a two-story sledding hill. I love being a part of building that stuff. And, and I've actually had the opportunity, I'm in the process of building a couple, a couple houses is uh, one of which is my own, and I get to build it um, on my own. And it's uh, the ultimate DIY project. It's going to be forever long. Uh, ask, just ask my wife. It's taking forever. And, um, and I just, I like working on all these things. I love building things. And I've realized that it's not just me who likes building things. That everybody likes building things. I mean, if you look at little kids and you look at some of the toys that they have, um, think about kids' toys. So we've got um, Lincoln Logs. Are those still popular these days? Lincoln Logs? Kids still do? Okay, Lincoln Logs. Um, we got puzzles. We got Hot Wheels tracks, which I don't want to brag, but I built a pretty incredible one this week with my son. Uh, we've, got, uh, we've got doll houses. We've got collections. We build collections of things. Baseball card collections. Who still has those in their attic waiting for those to pay off? Yeah, that's right. Or Beanie Babies. That's going to pay college tuition pretty soon, I'm pretty sure. Just holding on to that Princess Diana one. It's got to go on eBay any day now. Or um, I remember I used to collect and build up my collection of pogs. Do you have pogs? Do you remember pogs? Some of you guys are, are shaking your head yes. Some of you guys are just blank stares. Yeah. Slammers. Yes. Slammers. Grand slammers. You play for keepsies. You remember those? <laughs> yeah. Well, everybody's building. Everybody is about building something. Now, it, it might be a different kind of building, but you're building different arenas of your life. You're building your marriage, and you're building up your kids, and you're building up your career, your business. You're even building up your character and your faith. And there's something within all of us that it just feels natural to build. It's almost like we, we have to do it. And the reason why I think that we are, are builders is because the scripture says that you and I were made in the image of God, and God's thumbprint is, is all over us. And so because God is the ultimate builder, you and I are builders as well. See, God, he obviously is a builder. He built the universe. He built the world. He built everything that is within it. And so we naturally are builders as well. And so if we were, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, if we were to um, look at what the scripture says about God being a builder, what he does is he builds and then he does something kind of crazy. He invites us into the building process. He says, let's be co-creators. Let's build something together. And, and it's not because he, he needs us, right? It's not because we like add anything to it. He goes, gosh, I've just got such a big list of stuff. Can you guys help me build a couple? No, we, he doesn't need us, but he wants to be in a relationship with us. He wants us to, to partner with him in building things. And so I think about my son, Ezra. Um, he loves helping me around the house. Anytime I'm working around the house, boom, there he is by my side. And he's going, dad, what can I, what can I help you with today? You know, what do you need help with? I can tell you're struggling a little bit. And in fact, he, uh, he loves it so much that his Nana and Papa for Christmas got him a little miniature tool belt with actual tools. It's got tape measures, screwdrivers, and he wears that thing around and he's kind of like, all right, dad, let's tackle this. You know, let's make this happen. 
And uh, it is cute, and I love doing it with them because I love just hanging out with them and building something together. But I have a rule for them, and the rule is, look, you can help Daddy build, no problem. I love it when you, when you partner along with me, but you cannot build on your own, especially with the power tools, okay? You don't get to touch those. It's only okay to build with your Father's help. That's kind of what the Scripture tells us. It says, look, God's going to build, And he wants you to partner with him in building something significant. And yet when you venture out on your own and you try to build by yourself, it doesn't go well. And so I I began to think about this this week and and I thought, well, you know, let me just start going through the scriptures and and seeing what it has to say with building. And obviously I want to start at the beginning because God builds the heaven, builds the heaven and earth and, and and he builds us and he puts us in this garden. And so I started there. I started in Genesis. And I just started to flip through Genesis, and here's what happens. Genesis 1, we see that God creates us, and he creates this place for us to live, the Garden of Eden, and he places us in it, and then he immediately tells us to begin building. So Genesis 1, I think it's 28, it started up there, says, he says, be fruitful and multiply. So he tells us, go and start to build a family. Second chapter of Genesis, he then tells us, uh, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. He says, I want you to go and build out the garden, because building is all about creating and developing. And so he says, here's the raw materials. Go and build with them. Now, the next chapter of Genesis, Genesis 3, is where things go wrong. And if you've ever had employees, you've ever led a team, you've, even, you've just had kids, you know that when you give someone the freedom to be creative, to develop, to build, they also have the freedom to destroy. And that's what we do. Humanity says, thank you for the freedom, thank you for the ability, thank you for the passion, but we don't need your help any longer. We're going to figure this out on our own, God, and things go badly. And so the consequence of that is us pushing God out of the building process is that he bans us from the garden. This thing called sin enters into the world, and because of that, death. And then there's one more consequence, and we oftentimes overlook this, is God says that from here on out, humanity is going to be frustrated. It's going gonna, it's gonna to face difficulties in the building process. That everything you do, everything you go out and you build is going to be far more difficult now because of this rebellion. So next chapter, we, uh, we, we find that Adam and Eve, Genesis 4, we find that Adam and Eve are, are out of the garden. And because it's a very stressful time in their life, they decide that they're going to have kids because that will make it a lot easier and better. And if you believe that, you're not a parent. And so they have kids, Cain and Abel. Well, we know that Cain ends up killing his brother Abel, and he gets then cast out of the land in which he was. He's in a foreign land. And the first thing that Cain does as he finds his place, uh, finds himself in a a new foreign land is this. It says this. It says, uh, Cain made love to his wife, um, which is obviously the first thing that I would do as well. And... uh, some of you guys are like, what is that? You should read the Bible. It's crazy what's in there, right? Uh, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city, and he named it after his son Enoch. So the first thing, his natural disposition, the thing that he turns to is, I need to go out and I need to build a family, and I'm going to build a city. Because there's just something in him that he has to go and he has to build. Well, chapter 5 of Genesis, uh, man begins to populate the earth and And unfortunately, they haven't learned their lesson. And so instead of turning back to God and building in partnership with him, they continue to go downhill and try to do things on their own. And so as God looks at humanity, he says that every person on earth is wicked at this point. 
And he, he, it even says that God regretted creating mankind, that no one was righteous. But then he comes across one man, and this one man's name is Noah. And he says, okay, there's one man who is righteous, so I'm gonna save him and his family because of his righteousness. And so the way that I'm gonna save it, the way that he's going to be saved is, and we see this real quick, is he's going to build a large boat. The way to salvation for you, Noah, the way that you and your family will survive is by you building. What we see at the end of the, the story of Noah and the flood in Genesis 10, that humanity begins to rebuild and repopulate and it begins to get back on its feet with God's help. And of course, what's the cycle tell us? Once they get back on their feet, once they begin to rebuild, they decide, ah, we think we've got this now, God. Thank you for your help. Glad to get back on, but we're going to go and do our own thing once again. And so they decide to rebel against God. And how do they rebel against God? Genesis 11:4 tells us, uh, they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. We are going to, uh, we are going to build ourselves into somebody and something. And we're going to build something so grand, so big, that not even God himself will be able to stand against it. So at this point, I have to imagine that God is looking down at humanity and going, you are a bunch of fools. <laughs> I have given you the ability to create, to co-create with me, to build these passions. And yet every time that we build together, it goes well. And then you think you've got it. You try to go on your own and it fails miserably. And so God decides he's going to intervene. You guys can't figure this out. I'm going to have to build something on your behalf. So the very next chapter, chapter 12 in Genesis, God enters in and he calls a man named Abram, later named Abraham, and he says, I will build you a great nation, or build a great nation from you. I will bless you and make your name famous. People will use your name to bless other people. And so he says, look, here's the deal. You can't figure this whole thing out. So I'm going to build you into a nation of people, and we're going to have a special relationship. And in that special relationship, I'm going to tell you things about me, and then eventually you are going to bless the entire world. And so we see that God steps in, and he begins the building process. If you go through the rest of the uh, Old Testament, you see this pattern continuing over and over again, and I don't have time to go through it, but you can just see in, in some, of the, some of the major points in the Old Testament, like Moses, for example. If you took uh, the story of Moses, you watch him bring the people uh, out of Egypt, out of slavery, into uh, the desert, and as he's in the desert, God calls him to the top of the mountain. At the top of the mountain, God gives him the Ten Commandments, say, this is what's going to be the guiding principle for you, and when he is done receiving the Ten Commandments, the very first thing that God tells him to do is, you need to go now, and you need to build a tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, and, uh, and what's the last thing? Doyle, where are you at? Altar. You don't know the Old Testament, bro. <laughs> like how I forgot and it's his fault. It's like we're married, but it's, it's not. Anyway, where was I? Oh yeah, so uh, Ten Commandments, God calls him to go and to build these things. So he goes down the mountain and as he's heading down the mountain, the people who were waiting for him, the Hebrews, the Israelites, the Jews, they, they end up turning away from God. And the way that they turn away from God is how? They end up building a golden calf. The very thing that God gifted them with, the ability to build, is the thing that brought them down. So finally enter into the promised land. God, once, they, uh, bring, God, once God brings them into the promised land, he says, I want you to remember this. The way that you're going to remember this is you're going to build a monument so that every time you pass by, you can recall the story of how God has delivered you. 
Well, you fast forward and eventually the promise that God made to Abraham, we see it come to fruition. That God does build this incredible nation, the nation of Israel, and within that nation, he builds an incredible city, the city of Jerusalem. And within Jerusalem, he builds this incredible temple in which he says his very presence will dwell. And so the building process continues on until, what? We decide we're going to do it on our own. We don't need God anymore. Thanks for getting us here. We're going to go ahead and do this on our, on our own. And so everything that God has built is destroyed. The nation is split in half. The land is taken over. The city of Jerusalem is, is, is destroyed. The people are taken into captivity until one day some faithful people say, you know, God, will you help us rebuild? And that was what our last series was about. Ezra and Nehemiah and other Jews who said, you know what, uh, we messed up and, and we want to partner with you once again in, in rebuilding. And so they begin the rebuilding process. And so I, I don't probably need to point out the obvious here, but the moral of the story is it goes badly when you build without God, right? I, you look, I spent a lot of years studying and I was in seminary and I just taught you pretty much everything you need to know about the Old Testament. Goes bad without God. God is faithful, we're not, bad deal, okay? That's it, right there. And so the next, uh, the next part of the story is crucial because I, I believe that God looked at us and he goes, you know, you're not getting it. I don't know if you've ever had a child that, that's like that, like every child, but where you've said the same thing over and over and over again and you just go, oh, this is amazing. Like you have a gift, I can say the same thing, and it's as if you've never heard it before. How is this possible? I kind of think that that's what God is probably thinking about mankind at this point. Like, how many times are we going to go through this? And so here's what I do when I have a child like that on pretty much a daily basis, is I, I, I do this. I get down, I look at him eye to eye, and I go, okay, buddy, there's only one of my children who are a problem, buddy, <laughs> we're, we're clearly not understanding what, what we need to do here, okay? And so I need you to look at me in the eyes. Oh, I don't want to. No, look at me in the eyes. I want to come to an understanding here. And that's kind of what God does. He goes, okay, I'm going to have to come down and I'm going to have to look you eye to eye so that we come to an understanding. Your life is not going to work unless I'm involved. And so he does that. He comes in the person of Jesus. He comes eyeball to eyeball with his creation. He says, okay, listen, I'm going to tell you this one more time. And in Matthew 7, here's what he says. He says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been uh, founded on the rock. He says, look, okay, we've been through this before, but I want to tell you this, and this is going to be really, really clear. You got to build your house on me. And he kind of gives us an analogy. He says that your life and my life is kind of like building a house. There, there's a, about a thousand different parts that come together to make a house, right? You've got, you've got, the, 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 you've got the, the framing, you've got the electrical, the plumbing, the drywall, the doors, you've got the fixtures, you've got a thousand different parts and they all come together and they make this house. And your life is like that is you have a thousand things that make your life your life. You've got hopes and dreams and relationships and a career, and you've got all of these pieces. When they come together, they make you. And then he points out the most important part of the house. He says, in all of that, no matter how beautiful the house is that you build, all of it is dependent upon the foundation that you build it upon. And so he's reminding us 
that it doesn't matter how great your life is. If you have the picture-perfect life, if you have a poor foundation, that thing will not last. And we've seen this before, right? You've turned on the television and there's a big storm and those houses that are sitting on those cliffs overlooking the ocean, it's just a little bit too much rain and it starts to erode and the foundation collapses and that thing falls into the ocean, this beautiful mansion. And all of us are just secretly just loving it because we're jealous that they got to live there in the first place. And so we're like, that's what you get. And, and so, 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 it's a, so it's a good reminder it doesn't matter how beautiful this house is that you're building, if the foundation is poor, it's simply not going to last. And so he says, if you want your life to matter, if you want it to withstand this life and the next, then you're going to have to build your life upon me. And when he says this, what he means is that I am the ultimate authority, that what I want is going to be uh, is going to be what, what takes place in your life. When you think about your future, when you think about your sexuality and your behavior and your relationships and your purpose and goals, all of that is dependent upon what I say and what I want. That's what it means to make me the foundation. And then he tells us what will happen if we do not. And verse 26 says, and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. So what he's saying is, everybody's going to build their life on something or someone. You can't help it. You will make someone or something the point of your life. It is what's going to shape how you view yourself, your value, your future, your hopes, your dreams. Everyone is building on something or someone. And he says, if you build it on anything besides him, it's just not going to last. It's not going to fulfill. It's not going to be able to withstand the storms of life. And so it might be money, it might be pleasure, success, acclaim, beauty, whatever. Those things, they may be great things. They may be a great part of your house, but they're just supposed to be a part. They're not supposed to be the foundation. Because no matter how good those things are, they were never created to bear the weight of, of your hopes and dreams, of your life. Your heart is set on eternity. Those are temporal things. And so if you're trying to take something, let's say, let's imagine it's a beautiful front door. Oh my goodness, what a beautiful front door and you try to build a house off a beautiful front door, it's not going to last long. And yet that's what some of us decide to do with our lives. And he says, if you want your life to matter, if you want it to last, you have to build it on me. So the, uh, a couple of chapters later in Matthew 16, God, or Jesus is having a conversation with some of his disciples, and as they're talking, he's asking them, hey, um, lots of people are talking about me. Lots of conversations happening about me. I do these miracles and stuff. It gets people all fired up what are people saying about me? So the disciples say, well, some people are saying that you're like a prophet. Some people are saying you're just an incredible teacher. They're pretty sure that you're sent from God, but they don't know exactly how to explain who you are. And so he turns the question back on his disciples. He says, well, who do you say that I am? And if you know anything about the disciples, the person, of course, who's going to jump in and is going to answer this is going to be Peter because he just can't help himself. And so here's what he says. He says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Now this statement may not mean a whole lot to you and I, but as a first century Jew, this was massive. What he was saying was, you're the one that we've been waiting for. You're the one that God promised to send that's going to save us, that's going to bring salvation into the world. You are the Messiah. We've been waiting for you, and I think that's who you are. After watching you, after seeing your miracles, about hearing about the authority in your teaching, I think that's, that's who you are, Jesus. And so it continues on, 17 says, Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And then watch this next part. Keep going. 
And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, the rock here that he's talking about is the statement that Jesus is the Messiah. And he's saying, I'm going to build this thing, church, in which, by the way, they had no idea what he was talking about at this point. He says, I'm going to build my church on the statement that I am the Messiah. And they don't know this yet, but what's going to be a part of that statement is that Jesus died and resurrected so that we could be forgiven of our sins. And so on that belief, I'm going to build my church. And when they heard the word church, they did not have the same, uh, same thoughts that we do when we hear church. When we hear church, we think of uh, steeple, maybe some pews, uh, choir, seacoast, whatever, okay? We have this preconceived notion of what church is. When they heard it, they heard church. That's, what does that have to do with anything? Because church wasn't a religious word. It was just a word for uh, a gathering, an assembly of people. So I said, so you're going to have an assembly of people who are going to come together, and they're all going to say that you are the Messiah. He says, yep, and nothing is going to be able to stop it. There's nothing in this world that's going to stop that movement from growing to the ends of the earth and continue to build upon. What? Now, we get to look 2,000 years backwards and go, yeah, that's crazy. It happened. But imagine being there in that moment when Jesus is saying this. There's, okay, let me put it in context for you. You and I, were sitting around, and we're having coffee. There's a dozen of us. And I go, guys, I got a, I got a pretty big dream for the future. Yeah, I think um, one day there's going to be a movement of people, and it's going to change the hearts and minds of humanity, and what they're going to do is they're going to come together, and they're going to worship, and they're going to praise, and it's all going to be around the belief that Cody was incredible. (laughs) Yeah, we're going to call it Codyanity, and it's going to transform the world. You know who probably wouldn't be interested in joining that group? Anyone who has ever met me before. They would go, we barely want to have coffee with you right now, let alone be in a movement, okay? And yet that's what he's claiming. He's saying there's going to be a movement in the world so big that it's going to turn it upside down and it's going to be the thing that reconciles God and man. And so he, uh, he, um, he then has a strategy, a plan. So here's the vision. Here's what I want to see come together and then here's the plan and I won't go through the verse, but in Matthew 28, he says, the way that we're going to accomplish this is that you all, my disciples, you're going to go out And all the things that you've come to believe, the things that you've heard, the things that you've seen, all of that, you're now going to replicate in other people. So like, you're my disciple, I want you to go out and I want you to make more people like yourself, more disciples. And so they they decided that they were going to do it. But the problem is, this is like a pretty big task. And so before Jesus ascends into heaven, he says, you're going to need some tools, some power tools. And so I'm going to send you a helper. It's going to be called the Holy Spirit. He's going to come. He's going to empower you. He's going to go with you as you build this church. So go and wait. In the book of Acts, we see that they wait and the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And then we see the beginning of the church and it starts to take place and take shape and it starts transforming in thousands of people. It goes from this tiny little handful of people to thousands of people like that. And one of the people that began to believe in Jesus was a man named Paul. And Paul not only believed in Jesus, but he took the commandment to build his church seriously, and so he starts planting churches all over the place. And he takes the teachings of Jesus and all the theology behind it, begins to tease it out, and he comes up with a blueprint for the church, and he says, okay, this is the framework. This is what it should look like if you're going to do church correctly. And we have the letters where he writes to those churches in our New Testament. And the crazy thing is if we look at the first 300 years of the church, and I wish I had time to get into this, but the first 300 years went from these 
tiny little religious sect to taking over the Roman Empire in 300 years. Now, it doesn't sound like a huge deal to us, but if you did some research and you were to look into some of the, uh, some of the historical accounts and, and historians wrestling with how this happened, you would realize that this is miraculous. In fact, I read a couple of historians who are not Christians, and they said, I don't know about the whole Jesus thing and about resurrection, but I will tell you this, it was miraculous what happened to the church. It should have never made it out of the first century, and it ended up taking over the entire empire. And they point at different things, and this is probably a whole other talk in itself, but they talk about the sexual ethics of Christians and the community and the equality that they offered and the care and the forgiveness and their view on God and all of these things were so different than the culture around them that people took notice. Some were offended and repelled, but many were attracted and believed. And so for me, I'm, I'm really glad personally that the church made it out of the first century, not just because of my faith, of course, but because of the impact that it's had on the world. See, when I look at the world that you and I live in, especially here in the West, it has been so impacted by the church that we may not realize it, that all the things or many of the things that you and I value the most in life are a result of people sacrificing, pushing the church forward, building it, and then we get to benefit uh, the benefit of it. Things like human value, that every person is made in God's image, Gender equality, that women and children have the same value as men. Personal freedom, education, modern science, hospitals, democracy, law, all of these things were built upon the foundation of the church because people decided to continue to push the church forward to the ends of the earth. And so Christ, he guarantees when he launched the church that it would not be stopped, that it will continue in the world until he returns. And we see it happening We see it happening in places like Africa and South America and Asia. It is exploding. The church is building in all of these places. But here's what Christ did not guarantee, that the church would build in this place and this time. He's working. He is working in the world. He is partnering with people across this globe in order to build his church. And yet, he does not guarantee that it's going to be here and now unless we partner with him. I think about the church that I want to leave my kids and my grandkids. And I kind of wonder, is it going to be a shadow of its former self, forgotten remnant, a distant memory, or will it be so strong that they are able to build upon it and move it into the future? What kind of church am I leaving them? What kind of church are are you leaving, your kids and and your grandkids? This last week I was... uh, had the opportunity to take a couple days off and I went snowboarding with my dad and my brother-in-law and I've been snowboarding for, for you know, most, of my, most of my life, and I got up there, and it snowed a ton the night before, like three feet. It was ridiculous, and I thought, you know what? Today's going to be the day that I get the best run of my life. There's powder, and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to go wait in line because the top of the mountain wasn't open yet. I'm going to go wait in line until they open it so I can be the first one up on, that, uh, up on the top of the mountain and get, like, the best run. And so my dad and my brother-in-law, they went and they decided to go and ski. And so for two and a half hours, I sat there and I waited with a group of, uh, of people and the line continued to grow. And, and during that two and a half hours, the strangest thing happened is the, the lift to go to the top was running, but nobody was on it until an employee would come by. And over the two and a half hours, I think m- almost every employee of that mountain made it to the top and got to ski down before any of us were allowed to. And so I looked at the guy who's standing next to me, and we had been talking for a while, and I'm like, dude, I don't think there's going to be anything left for us when we get up there. 
And he goes, oh, that better not be true. I'm like, oh, we'll see. And there wasn't. I get up to the top of that mountain. I buckle in. I go to hit the slope thinking, yes, this is going to be worth it. And it is demolished. There's nothing left. And so I, I rode down the mountain. I literally went to the lodge. I got two runs in that day. And I said, I quit. I'm done. I'm never coming back to the mountain. I may have gotten a little dramatic. I said, I'm never snowboarding again. Whatever, I was hungry. Um, And of course, I was, I was frustrated because you guys have ruined it for us. And then I began to think about why they did that. And I think part of it is because they have forgotten who they were. They forgot that they were there to contribute, not to consume. That their whole purpose of existing there was to make that place better, not to take away from it. And I sometimes worry that about Seacoast is have we lost that vision a little bit? Because if you go back into Seacoast history, there was a time in which we were a mobile church. That means we had to set up and tear down because we were out of school. And so there was hundreds of man hours that took place in order for church just to happen. And so if you were a part of Seacoast, you didn't just show up. You had to go and you had to set up. You had to tear down. You had to really roll up your sleeves and be a part of it. And so everybody who attended knew, look, I'm here to contribute. I'm not here to consume. And one of the problems with God blessing you is sometimes you can get a little bit lazy. That you've been blessed, and so you know what, I'm good, and and I don't need to do anything more, and you start to slowly go from a contributor to a consumer. And so people show up here, and they go, well, that's somebody else's job. That's somebody else to pick that up. That's somebody else to volunteer there. That's so, and we've become a group of consumers instead of contributors. We've forgotten why we exist. And so I was reminded this last week as I was thinking about that, but I was also um, thinking about the families that I'm constantly surrounded by. So I know it's a life stage that I'm in, but I feel like I'm up to my eyeballs and children at all times. There's my kids, there's their friends, there's their going to school, doing the sports, going to their teams and their hobbies. I feel like it is kids constantly, and I come here, I'm like, oh my gosh, they're everywhere, right? I can't get a break from these kids. And I love it, it's great. But I sit there and, and I watch some of these families, the, you know, the families on my, in the schools and sports teams, and, and I look at these little kids and, man, I just, oh, they're so cute, right? I just, oh, even your snotty nose, I just love it, right? You're just, oh, you're beautiful. Look at you little kids. And it's because they're so innocent. There's still so much life ahead of them. I know they're going to be teenagers and they're not cute or lovable any longer. <laughs> just kidding. But I look at them and I think, wow, you have your whole life ahead of you. You have so much potential. Your life could be anything. And I also know that unless their parents decide to get them in church, introduce them to Christ, get them to be a part of this community, they're never going to be able to build the life that they were supposed to build because they're never going to partner with God on it. And it makes me so bummed to think, wow, you, you were destined for so much more, and yet without God's help, you're never going to build something of significance, of meaning, something that's going to last. And yeah, I look at the youth, and I look at the young adults, and I got to be honest, they are in such a, a fragile place because they're kind of like a plane that's taking off. You know, just any slight move, any slight direction change, and it will change the whole trajectory of their life. And so I just think, please, parents, just get them here. Introduce them to Christ because there's going to be moments in which they're not sure who they are, and there's going to be peer pressure, and they're going to be trying to make these big, huge decisions at such a young age, and they need Christ to be able to build that future with. And then I look at their parents, and I think, oh, please, tell me it's not true that 
half of these marriages aren't going to work. That these kids are going to see their parents split apart and the anger and the frustration and the brokenness and, oh, I just wish we could be a part of the, the change, that we could help them build their marriage. And so I think the church of the future is really dependent upon what we do with it, that God has placed us in this unique place in this time and given us this window of opportunity and he says, what are you going to do with my church? In Nehemiah, Nehemiah um, assigned a section of the wall to all the different families and said, you're responsible for this piece. And I think God does the same thing with us. He says, here's my church. You're responsible in this place and time. What are you going to do with it? What are you going to build here? And so what are we going to build here? Are we going to build that place where these kids and these youth and these parents and these couples and that they can come and they can build their lives in partnership with God? Or are we going to be comfortable? We're going to be consumers. If we're not, it's going to take a lot of sacrifice. It's going to take sacrifice of our time and of our talent and our treasures. We're going to have to contribute far more than we consume. We're going to have to give of our money. We're going to have to give of our time and And we're going to have to really dig our heels and invest if we want to see this church not only continue, but be stronger than it has ever been. And so the question I want to leave you with is this, is God has given us a small window, an opportunity in time to be a part of building His church. What are you, you personally, your family, what are you going to do to help build the church? Let's pray. Lord God, It is a crazy idea that you have decided to partner with us in building, and building our lives, and and building this church, and building the church, the the movement that is going to change the hearts and minds of people, that is going to change their eternity, that you have allowed us to be a part of that process is crazy to say the least. And so, Lord God, we want to be good stewards of the church. This may be the church in the place and time that you have set us that we want to build something incredible that can be built upon in the future that our kids, that our grandkids can build upon. And so, Lord God, let us be the people who become contributors instead of consumers, people who are making the church better than the way that we had found it. And so, Lord God, use us. Speak to us individually. Help us to understand what it is that you want us to do what it is that you want us to sacrifice, to give, to volunteer. Lord, let us be the church and help us to build the church. Lord, we love you. We thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.